CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is sponsored by Zengo. This is the Hash Podcast. Stay informed with the latest on Bitcoin, ETH, the Metaverse, Web3, and more with stories that matter to the crypto world. All on the hash for your ears. You're listening to the Coindesk Podcast Network. Hey there, happy Monday. Welcome to October 10th. You are watching Coindesk TV. It's the hash. I'm Zach Seward. We are here with you today. I'm joined by Will Foxley, David Morris, and Jen Sanasi. Let's get this thing going. All right, David, you are starting us up today with a little bit financial censorship stuff. Take it away. Yeah, a pretty crazy story unfolded starting on Friday and over the weekend. PayPal published an update to its AUP acceptable use policy that uh, indicated that any PayPal user who was deemed to have been spreading misinformation would be fined $2,500 by the payments platform. Um, Very quickly, PayPal issued a statement that uh, claimed this was an error that this policy was never intended to be implemented. Um, we can we can discuss that, uh, but we also have uh, a lot of evidence that over the years, PayPal has, whether or not it's an explicit policy, uh, done something like this to various outlets and and individual users, and it's just another uh, another bit of financial censorship, as Zach said. And then we have a tweet here from David Marcus. Uh, formerly a high up in PayPal, uh, saying that it is betraying its mission. So yeah, we have these centralized services that are willing to take your money if it's politically convenient for them. Lots to discuss here. Jen, you seem disgusted. (laughs) Yeah, that's one way to put it. I think this story highlights a lot of things for me. One is that so many people don't read the fine print. I think we, I personally get emails from PayPal every week talking about updates to their terms of service. And I'll be honest, I don't read them all the time. And this was very jarring to read. The apology for the confusing language just feels like such a cop out. It read like, I'm sorry, you realized what the term said. And so now we didn't really mean it because it was unlikely that we would have enacted it. But the fact is, we wanted to be able to enact it if we had to. But anyways, you've noticed. And so now we are sorry. And it's just this whole thing has highlighted for me the conversation that we have so often on this show around CBDCs and financial censorship. I think people should be reading this story and thinking about, you know, being censored for their thoughts and what they're saying, not only by private companies, 
but by governments and governments who have sway over private companies. And so, yes, David, you were right to read the discuss on my face, but Will, you look just as <laughs> disgusted. So I'm going to pass it off to you. That's just my resting face. No, they say that on Fridays, <laughs> you know, you should put the bad info out there because no one's going to be able to see it. But it doesn't really matter in the age of Twitter, right? When Elon Musk is tweeting at you for your poor policy decisions, and there's nowhere to hide you're going to be found in PayPal, of course, reverse policy on this. I do want to take a larger step back, though, and look at the financial picture. It's not that PayPal decided to do this. It's where everything is going, right? It's not just PayPal. PayPal is just very uh, out there. People use a lot. People use Venmo. But guess what? This is coming to everybody. There's a lot of laws that have been enacted in the past five years on financial censorship. There's laws going back to the Patriot Act in the early 2000s about financial censorship. There's stuff going back to the 70s with banking acts about financial censorship. It's only becoming more progressive. And that progression tends to step on limited private users who do not want to have their names out there. But that is the way things are going. That's why PayPal is moving that direction. It was interesting to see that they pulled back after the uh, after Marcus went after him, after Elon went after him, after a few other Twitter users were like, hey, PayPal, we're not, we're not here for this. We're going to shut down our accounts. But I think this is where a lot of other uh, money custodian users are going to be going, right? So this is why we care so much about privacy, why we care so much about Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, because cryptocurrencies enables a future where we might have some protections against overreaching uh, officials and regulators. David, I'll throw it back up to you. Yeah, definitely a welcome point regarding the broader trend. However, I wanted to point out that uh, PayPal is individually facing consequences for having publicized this. Their stock is crashing this morning after the exchange over the weekend, down over 5% the last time I checked. And that's, that's worse than several uh, fintech ETFs and indexes around the world. So they're underperforming the rest of their category because they got caught uh, kind of publicizing this. I also really quickly just want to emphasize that, you know, this policy is actually something that PayPal already seems to be acting on. We reported several months ago about uh, two news outlets called Mint Press and Consortium, which are legitimate news outlets that feature really quite celebrated American journalists. And they had thousands of dollars frozen by PayPal uh, for reasons that have still been unexplained. So even though PayPal, quote unquote, reversed this statement, they actually do already behave this way. So it's not something that you can just rest easy about. Zach, you want to chime in with some last words here? Yes, this is the big, bad boogeyman that crypto people have been preparing to go to war with all these years, right? Censorship-resistant platforms, neutral platforms for the unimpeded flow of information and money. And that's the dream. Experiments like this, this quick little blip that popped up and was seemingly corrected, that's what it's all about. I mean, I think uh, people who maintain that they want free speech, they want, they want value-neutral platforms for the transfer of money. And when you're working with the big PayPal's of the world or you're working with other entities that have opinions on what is, what is good and what is bad, sometimes that can backfire. And I think what we're seeing here is some of the big picture around these neutral platforms and the prospects, the value of these platforms, right? So I think these conversations are super important to get out there. A little bit of histrionics on Twitter, of course, uh, when we see such stuff like this. But in general, those sort of those core issues I think they're certainly worth discussing. And we saw a little bit of discussion around them this weekend that we don't often see. So that's, that's my take. I think we're going to stay in the payments realm, I believe. 
We're going to go over to Signal, MobileCoin. Will, you got this one. Take it away. Oh, yeah. This is a nice pairing with the PayPal topic this morning. Privacy-focused cryptocurrency and payments firm MobileCoin, in collaboration with Stablecoin Platform Reserve, has launched a stablecoin dubbed Electronic Dollars, or EUSD. This project essentially enables a to break down a transaction graph for users out there who want to have a stablecoin experience but do not want to be tracked. It is fully KYC'd for on-ramp and off-ramp. And it integrates with your cell phone, notably Signal, so you're able to send a stablecoin payment through a messaging application, or at least that is the larger ambition. This project has been in the works for a little bit. Cool to see this announcement come out this morning. Zach, actually going to bump this one back up to you. There's a few things in here that I actually want to tee up just to get your take on it. A stablecoin and privacy, those things have never really worked together in the past because you need to have some sort of reserve behind things. We've seen things like algorithmic stablecoins that they tried to implement privacy on top of, but the economics don't work. If you try to do privacy with reserves, well, that's tough also because those reserves have to be sitting in someone else's pockets. Curious to get your take on those two things in this announcement. I So for me, I'm going to bump back to you because I saw you chopping it up in the comments and Twitter, and I want to get Ooh. your take on this question specifically. So I think hold that thought. The thing for me is that we keep stumbling forward in this big dream from 2018 of uh, messenger platform native payments, right? And I think this is a really interesting example, right? Where we saw MobileCoin have a semi-hush-hush you know, relationship with Signal. We saw them roll out some functionality previously, but with a more native crypto asset, right? So the idea that a stablecoin is entering the picture, I think is really important for, again, this stumble to the finish line of can we get payments in messaging platforms? I think that really stands out as big. But Will, I want to toss it back to you because you mentioned sort of the KYC stuff. Is it really private payments if these are known parties interacting with each other? Is this being sort of like overly hyped as a privacy alternative? I think it's a great step forward to making you know, payments and messaging apps easier for folks. But on the privacy angle, like I'm very curious for your thoughts because I saw you uh, asking some pointed questions about that uh, over on Twitter. Yeah, just the, the first part there really quick. We had the Telegram announcement last week where they had the limited ability to trade OTC on Telegram, right? And that's a huge ambition for a lot of crypto users is the pairing of messaging applications and crypto. So that's notable. But to the privacy question, I think there's still a lot of information we need to understand if this is actually something that's going to work. Claiming to have a private stablecoin that would really turn the tables on everything in crypto. That's a huge ambition. And from this announcement, what we see right now, this seems to be an ambition, but it doesn't seem to be much more than that. There's some information in there that does show that there's some privacy elements in here which are great. There's implementation zero-knowledge proofs, sort of break up the peer-to-peer -peer nature of these things. So only you have the information about your transaction and nobody else does. Uh, the counterparty, of course, that you're sending money to would have the information on their side. But there's not going to be some over-governing body that can look at all your transaction history. The issue with a lot of these private stablecoins, though, is the reserves, right? Like, I need to have a dollar somewhere to back up that stablecoin. And if that dollar is in someone's bank account, it necessarily has KYC information around it. Government probably can get its hands on it. And what does that mean for your electronic representation of that if it's stolen or if it's taken or if it's just sitting there separated away from your transaction? can mean a whole host of things. doesn't necessarily mean that it's broken, but doesn't mean that there's necessarily true privacy. And they even say at the very end that they have on and off ramp KYC. So this project is both private and fully KYC. And to a lot of people in the privacy camp, those two things don't work together at all. So it's almost funny. 
to some people, they say, well, you can have that. You can have a little bit of both, both the best, uh, best of both worlds. I don't necessarily agree with that. Yeah, I, I would tend to fall in the camp that thinks that, like, at least in theory, there is a middle ground here that might work in terms of uh, on and off ramps that are KYC'd, but transactions that are obfuscated. I have a totally different concern based on reading this story, which is that MobileCoin runs on its own blockchain and its tokens are bridged to Ethereum. Uh, one of the things that we've learned over the past two years is that that, at least on its face, is a terrible idea. Uh, bridges get hacked all the time. Wrapped tokens ported to Ethereum are not safe. Um, and the question, I guess, that I have for probably will again is, you know, the mobile coin blockchain does not seem to store the value, but it still seems to be a serious risk if, if it's a bridge that is interacting with Ethereum and other chains only through wrappers. So I don't know if there's anything on the roadmap that you can talk me down with, but that to me seems almost more of a concern than anything else. Yeah, I think that's a spot on observation. Bridges are really tough. And Vitalik, co-founder of Ethereum, has even mentioned this in a very large blog post on the subject about how bridges might not be feasible in crypto because you don't have very good economic guarantees around them. They're liable to be hacked. You don't know where your asset is sitting. Is it in one blockchain or is it on the other? Who's going to recognize it in the event of a hack? Which blockchain has more sovereignty than the other. There's a whole host of questions that we still need answers to in order to allow bridging. That being said, bridging is a pretty useful technology, and that's why we've seen it pop off so much. Of course, that has led to just even more hacks. So it's sort of a tough pickle to be in. David, just to wrap up your question, I just don't really see the need for bridges at this point. Maybe they need to get some sort of like reserves into the project, need to get dollars, some volume into the project. But I think it is like a pretty finicky spot to build on top of. Jen, I'll give it to you, though, for any last comments. Yeah, I also had a question for you, Will, based on the KYC and transactional data. Could we think of this as, you know, how we interact with the traditional banks? Like we are KYC, we can make transactions, but not everyone who we transact with can see the transactions in our bank account. Is that how we can think about this project as we kind of sort out all of these other um, finagly things that we've brought up during the segment? Ostensibly, yes. I think it's one step up from there. In fact, that like the people who are issuing the tokens can't see your transaction history either because it does go through a zero-knowledge proof. But I think we need a little bit more information to say that total certainty, right? Because we don't always know. There's these governing bodies that are somehow involved in this mobile coin creation and the minting of these tokens. And you have to wonder what these governing bodies within it are able to do, right? You can think of them as like the validators or the miners of the network, but they seem to have a little bit more special powers, including minting and burning of these tokens. And then there's also this multi-sig that it's backed up against. And when you have a multi-sig involved with any sort of chain, then you really have to start asking questions. Whenever there's a multi-sig involved, that's normally where you see a hack begin because someone is going to get mm -hmm. compromised at some point. That's why you can't really build on top of them. That being said, I think there's more information to come on the story in the near future. So I look forward to more of those developments. Zengo Crypto Wallet is an on-chain crypto wallet with no private key vulnerability, leveraging advanced cryptography called MPC, which until now has only been available to multi-billion dollar institutions. Zengo is the most secure Web3 wallet and the best place to keep your digital currency, NFTs, and assets secure. It's also fully recoverable using the wallet's biometric recovery kit. 
Get started at zengo.com slash hash and use code hash to get $20 back on your first purchase of $200 or more. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to Coindesk's Women Who Web 3 podcast, your weekly podcast celebrating women supporting women, investing in women, and bridging the gender gap in wealth through Web3. Each week, we'll be learning from powerful women sharing their insights on topics like creating belonging and inclusivity in the digital spaces, the metaverse, building prosperous Web3 projects, investing in cryptocurrencies and building wealth. And we have how-tos from founders and builders who have been there and done that, healing sessions to give you the power to overcome imposter syndrome and everything you need to level up in your crypto journey. At the end of each podcast, stick around for some Zen with a relaxing meditation to center you after absorbing all the stories and the knowledge. I'm your host, Cams, and I'm on a mission to empower women across the globe to unlock the unlimited potential and earning power inside themselves through Web3. Whether you're just crypto curious or a crypto connoisseur, this podcast is for you. Let's get it. We're talking about Wobi, big crypto exchange, big player in the Asian crypto markets. They seem to be about to be acquired. Terms of the deal not disclosed, but about capital is the reported buyer. We're going to see what happens with this one. But Wobi is definitely a major force in the crypto markets, especially, again, in Asia. And the fact that they're changing ownership here and now, interesting and worth remarking upon. I'm going to toss this straight to David for his thoughts. Uh, I got to say, I actually don't have a whole lot of insight here. It's just a testament to the fact that there is still demand and interest in, and belief in the long-term uh, viability of these platforms. But we don't have uh, a lot of information to go on here. Although we do have some speculation I saw in the subhead. I'm not sure what we're talking about or not talking about. But there is uh, some suspicion about different players being involved in this that we will be sorting out in the coming days. But as far as the acquisition itself, uh, I believe that there might be more personal motivations behind this than business, but I think we're still sorting some of that out as well. So I'm, I'm honestly not sure what we're supposed to say or not. <laughs> I'll grab it from there, David. I, I remember back in August, we were talking about the rumors that were swirling that Sam Bankman freed might be acquiring Wobi Digital. And then he was like, nope, those are just rumors, not going to happen. And now here we are, uh, talking about the story again. I wonder what the platform will look like under new ownership. They say that there's the team is going to stay the same. There's going to be no change operationally. Business team is the exact same. But we're seeing a, a lot of uh, exchanges, you know, look at different business models to try and get through the bear market. So I wonder if we're going to see, you know, will we follow suit? Zach, I don't know if you have any intel on that. Yeah, I'll tell you what we can say. You know, Justin Sun, there's a Justin Sun angle here, people. Justin Sun is out there on Twitter <laughs> saying, I'm an advisor to this new thing and I'm going to be involved and always love to see Justin involved. So I'm going to throw it straight to Will for his initial thoughts. Anything, you know, in the tea leaves that you're reading, Will, what do you think? Anything with this man involved, I'm just so uncertain about. I, he sticks around, though. I've got to give him credit. <laughs> Thank like, you for not being ironic, Will. I think we're confusing listeners here. <laughs> I, I do love the fact that he's involved somehow again. We keep keep talking about it on the show, so let's keep that going. I want to talk about Huobi actually really quickly. It's a top 10 exchange by volume, according to Masari data. It used to be a little bit higher, and the reason that they've 
come crashing down during a bull market is because the competition has become very stiff. Think of all the exchanges that have done very well the last few years. Binance, number one. Coinbase, still doing very well. FTX, New Riser. And then there's a host of other exchanges that are also competing for that daily spot volume that people are trading on. Huobi, still doing great, has been around for quite a while. The thing that really hurt them last year, however, was China cracking down on Bitcoin. China had made so many proclamations about Bitcoin, made so many proclamations about banning it. And then in 2021, it actually seemingly came true where they banned not only Bitcoin mining, but also peer-to-peer trading of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. They tightened down on a lot of exchanges, a lot of pools. A lot of teams decided to move outside of China. And now it's the detriment of teams like Huobi, which were necessarily very built and ingrained in Chinese uh, society and Chinese tech culture. Now they had to find a new home. And that's not great to be moving during a bull market that puts you behind everybody else by quite a bit. Might be a reason why Binance moved a little bit earlier, right? Binance used to be largely China-based, but they hopped all over the world. And because they left, I think it helped them out a lot during the bull market. They didn't have to put up with any regulators coming down, knocking on doors. Uh, for Huobi, they moved out and looks like they're trying to get more capital so they can go global, so they can follow up on what Binance and other exchanges have done by moving into global markets. So we'll see if Huobi can pick it up. Really tough to do that during a bear market, but we have seen some comeback stories before. So we'll have to wait up and see. Zach, I'll bounce it back up to you. Yeah, will be. I mean, the fact that it's a top 10 and this one is still a bit fuzzy in terms of what's actually happening here definitely brings back a little bit of magic of the crypto world. You know, a little bit of mystery, a little bit of intrigue, a little magic. bit of, a little bit of, hmm, a little bit of head scratch. So the fact that Wobi <laughs> is such a big force in terms of volume and this is how this is going down, definitely kind of odd. Anyway, interesting to see, but let's change gears. Let's go to the metaverse. Jen, let's go to the metaverse. Let's go to the metaverse. David, we got to get you and Steve in that metaverse graphic. I think it would really Mm. just be the icing on the cake there. (laughs) Okay, so despite the money that poured into the metaverse during the bull market, active users are still pretty low. Decentraland and The Sandbox both have less than 1,000 daily active users, according to a report published on Coindesk over the weekend, and both are valued at over a billion dollars. I think there are a few angles we can take here, but David, I'm going to pass this one off to you first. What what should we be taking away from this article? Well, I have a lot of complicated feelings here because I think that in contrast to previous rounds of crypto speculation where systems had insane valuations, the thing about Decentraland and Sandbox is that they're both really building something. And Sandbox in particular has been inking a lot of deals where brands and big famous artists are going and doing stuff in that realm. And it is definitely uh, surprising to see the the low numbers of users. However, it's important to keep in mind that Sandbox particularly is right now just in one of its open beta seasons. So it's actually not totally in full production yet. The other thing that I want to mention here when we're talking about valuations is that these are not valuations based on equity and companies. These are token valuations. And I don't know the exact numbers, but with token valuations, often they include big blocks of tokens that are still held by the companies themselves. So those calculations are not always considered to be entirely accurate total market caps, simply because a lot of that liquidity is not out there. So, you know, just a, just a side note there. 
But there is still a valid argument for long-term valuations that are way higher than the active users right now. So it's not a complete delusion. It's definitely still in the realm of delusion. But Will, I saw your hand up. Yeah, I like that you brought up some critiques to the information we have right here. I think the token part is huge. Oftentimes, what we see is people take the total supply or expected future supply of a token, multiply it by the current price, and then you have some sort of valuation. Well, we all know that's not really true. Prices move all over the place. If you're going to sell a large holding, well, that price would move a lot. So we don't quite know what these networks are valued in terms of tokens. It's over $1 billion, but probably not worth that much. And that's okay, right? Like startups, it's a while to be worth even a million dollars, let alone a billion dollars. I think there's a lot of building to go on still. Just to flip it on the other side, though, some critiques here. I would be interested to know some information against other networks. So the, the information from DapRadar included in this article <laughs> says that they have about 38 transactions on the smart contract per day. Well, I'd like to see that comparison against another project that's a little bit smaller, but still people are hyped on, right? Like maybe there's a comparison there. Because a smart contract to a smart contract would be a good sort of transaction gauge there. The number of users in the metaverse per day, they said about 8,000, I think, for Decentraland, if I recall correctly. That's not a ton, but you know, it's also a bear market. There's not a lot of people out there. So I think these things are still building. We'll see what happens with it. Zach, I'll pop it up to you. Yeah, I mean, generally speaking, Web3 numbers are really small in terms of users, right? I mean, some of the bigger apps in the space are only seeing something like 15,000 daily active users. Uh, and that is according to the same you know, source of data on this one. So if you look and you sort of look at the number of people who are using this stuff on-chain in terms of which smart contracts are being used, whether that's an NFT marketplace or a game or a metaverse, they're still pretty small. And that's worth reckoning with. Is it 38 daily active users? That seems really small. You know, I trust that it's a small number. And I think what we need to figure out is, okay, is this small because there's poor product market fit? Is this small because um, the path to onboarding and using a wallet to interact with the central land is difficult? I know there's a way to interact with the central land without using your MetaMask, right? So I think there's a lot of sort of user interface and user experience questions that this really brings up. Yeah, for a lot of these uh, decentralized applications, the elephant in the room is that there's not that many users. We're talking about thousands or tens of thousands relative to the millions or hundreds of millions that mainstream tech services are seeing. So that to me is sort of where my head is at when I see a headline like this. It's also a bit too good to be true for all the haters, right? It's like it's an amazing headline to latch onto and say, oh, it really is a grift. And I think that's what we're seeing with this article really resonating with a lot of folks. But David, I'm going to talk to you with. Yeah, I just wanted to clarify one thing that you brought up, which is we have two different numbers here. Will pointed out that, um, again, I'm not sure if it was Decentraland or Sandbox, but one of them had 8,000 people per day actually logging into the interface, so experiencing the world. The number, the 38 number is for actual contract interactions. So, Zach, as you said, people who actually plug in their MetaMask wallet, they buy something within the system, they do something that has a token cost. That's the much lower number. You know, there's a lot that you can do in these systems without that contract interaction. So I think that's that's very important to keep in mind when we're looking at these numbers. All right, we'll leave it there. We're going to rebrand the Metaverse Minute to the Metaverse Minute because it's small. Oh, anyway, oh, wow. very nice. <laughs> good times, good mm. times. <laughs> we'll be back for the show tomorrow. Thanks for watching The Hash. Check us out on the Podcast Network if you haven't already. Great stuff over there. Good shows. The Hash is just one of them. That's it. We'll be back tomorrow. I'm Zach. That's David. Jen. Will's here. Peace out to you all. 
Have a lovely day. We'll talk to you soon. Bye. You've been listening to The Hash on the Coindesk Podcast Network. We would like to hear from you. So if you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, The Hash, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. Spring is in full bloom. Are your finances? With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, you can build credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments, all with no annual fees or interest. With Chime's Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started today at Chime.com build. That's Chime.com build. Chime feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com disclosures for details.